All right. This week, we're going a bit further afield. For once, I'm not going to talk about an industrial band or a band that primarily pumped out 12-inch singles or a band that was produced by Flood or some first-generation post-punk band that never lived to see success but which became a legendary inspiration for many generations of bands to come. No, I'm not going to talk about high school hijinks or that one boyfriend of my sister's or the dark ages before the web or cell phones back when the term mobile phone meant stretching the phone cord as far as you could down the basement steps and slamming the door. I am going to talk about a band that came around much later. In fact, they didn't even form until 1996, which was after I graduated from college. I was learning to be a respectable adult. But I didn't first hear them until much later, in 2000, when they were introduced in the United States by being name-checked in a popular film. Now, this film came out in the spring of 2000, and it starred a relatively old John Cusack and a relatively young Jack Black. It was a film called High Fidelity, and it was about a music lover who was having a hard time growing up. (laughs) And I don't know why, but for some reason, I identified with that movie. But anyway, this guy owned a record store, and in one scene, he said something to his co-worker like, I will now sell five copies of the three EPs by the beta band. And he put this record on the store sound system, and a track came on that was led by an acoustic guitar, but it had this scratchy breakbeat under it. And, of course, all the customers start nodding their heads to it. And it worked for me, too, because after walking out of the theater, I made a beeline to my local record store to find this mysterious album. And at this point in my life, I was an adult. I had a full-time job and a list of real-world responsibilities. And I wasn't discovering new music as quickly as I used to. So to find a band like the Beta Band this way was just an unexpected delight. I listened to this album over and over, just savoring it, and they became my new favorite band. And I'll admit, I got a little obsessed with them. Fortunately for my wallet, they didn't have too much for me to collect at the time. There was just uh, this record, which was called The Three EPs, mentioned in the movie. And it was a compilation, surprisingly, of their first three EPs. Then they had their debut full-length and self-titled album, which came out in 1999. And at the time, there was also a two-track single, To You Alone, backed with Sequencizer. So I duly bought all of these, and I devoured them and started looking forward to what they would do next. But what was this music? So, yeah, the song in High Fidelity would arguably become their biggest hit. It was called Dry the Rain, and it did indeed start with an acoustic guitar and vocals and that scratchy beat with the cool hand percussion. Uh, But by the end of that track, it kind of built itself up into a groovy funky kind of stomp with these anthemic vocals and this really sweet trumpet lead, which was really unexpected, but welcome. Uh, Just like in the movie, I found it to be an absolute head nodder in the best sense of the term, but listening to it, it sounded kind of loose and patchwork, like it was the result of distilling hours and hours of jamming and riffing, and all of this band's songs had that quality, 
Like they were written by a bunch of super creative but hyperactive folks who are stuck in a room with every possible instrument and everybody playing everything. It sounded like a blast, honestly, just listening to them. It sounded like a lot of fun. There were electronic aspects to it, mostly beats and samples, but it wasn't really electronic music per se, but it wasn't straight up rock either. It was this weird blend that was intriguing. Um, in my world at the time, it's, it's hard to go back and get yourself into that mindset you were in when you first heard this music so many years ago, but it seemed to me that there wasn't a lot to compare it to. Dry the Rain was sort of reminiscent of Beck's Loser in a way because it was folky, but it had beats and it successfully mixed the two, like acoustic guitar with beats. Uh, and later, the, the beta band would use the term folktronic to describe themselves. But not every song had acoustic guitar. There was a lot of variation. Uh, it was kind of psychedelic. Some of the songs were pretty out there, like Monolith, for instance, on this record. Uh, they were like music concrete or tape experiments with tapes speeding up and slowing down and just a lot of strange effects and noises. And they used a lot of unusual instrumentation. There were steel drums, horns, piano, accordion, you know, harmonica, just not typical rock stuff. It wasn't just drums, bass, and guitar. But to me, as a new listener, the thing that really tied the beta band together were the vocals. It seemed to be just one guy, uh, but he had this really distinctive and amazing voice, and he he did excellent vocal production. There were a ton of harmonies, and it just filled out the vocals. Uh, even when he was singing nonsense vocals, it sounded great. Uh, to me, that voice on top of just about anything defined the sound of the beta band. But maybe in retrospect, that's unfair to the other guys in the band. But uh, that's how I thought of it at the time. So listening to the three EPs, record was exciting. There was some sense of inventiveness here, a sense of anything goes. Um, and like thinking about it now, I, di I didn't make this connection then, but thinking about it now, I guess the closest thing that I could compare them to, to bands I knew at the time, wouldn't really be Beck, who I was never really into, but it would be more of a band like Love and Rockets. Uh, <laughs> And I just thought about this a week or so ago, just considering the beta band, that they really kind of had something in common with Love and Rockets. Uh, in the Tones on Tail episode, I described how Love and Rockets were a band that were pushing post-punk music into psychedelia. And that's not too far off from what the beta band were doing. They, uh, the beta band just got a later start, you know, and they were a different set of people with a different set of tools, but that's kind of where they were going here. There was a lot of genre mixing and, and finding and incorporating strange new sounds. So that begs the question, who were the beta band? Uh, there obviously was an internet and a fully functioning web in 2000 when I found this band, so I figured out who they were in short order. The beta band at that point were four guys. Three were from Scotland and one was from England. Steve Mason was their singer and lyricist, and he primarily played guitar. John McLean was the keyboard player and their DJ. And he played vinyl uh, and 
just actually putting vinyl on turntables more so than samplers. When I go back and and look at the shows that they played on YouTube or even the show I caught of theirs live, um, I didn't see him like pressing a lot of buttons on samplers. And how he did what he did is still a mystery to me. <laughs> um, but John McLean also filmed and directed a lot of their videos, especially the early ones, and they're all kind of nuts and definitely worth a look. Um, check out the original video for Intermeet Me, for instance. Uh, they had Robin Jones on drums and percussion, and Richard Greentree was the one English guy. Uh, he played bass. But all four of them, it should be said, switched instruments all the time. And, you know, what each one was playing at the moment depended on the song or the part of the song in question. So getting a little more into their history and looking at the liner notes for this record, what I could gather uh, from the internet and fan chats and, and everything available to me was that they met up in the mid-90s and were originally going to be a band called The Pigeons. So right away, whatever else you want to say about that, I'm glad they ended up with the name they did because <laughs> the beta band sounds a lot cooler than The Pigeons and has to be one of the coolest band names ever. I mean, I'm sure it gave them a leg up, right? And it, it's important here to note that in parts of the UK, it's pronounced beta band. And I don't mean to offend anybody. Um, I did poke around and try to find some audio of the band actually saying their own name, but I couldn't find that, so I'm not sure how they pronounced it. But I'm going with beta because it is an actual word, unlike Nitzer, and that's how beta is pronounced in the United States. It's, that's what I'm going to use. But for one reason or another, uh, one of their founding members, Gordon Anderson, left the band after the first EP or so. He's actually thanked here in the credits, and he went on to make his own band called Lone Pigeon, the name of which now is no longer a mystery. Their original bassist was a guy named Steve Duffield. He also quit after the first EP. So on the first EP here, they were actually a five-piece, and by the second EP, they had solidified as a four-piece uh, with a different bassist. So let's talk about the three EPs, both individually and as this compilation. So I have to admit that I like the idea of bands putting out a series of related EPs. I think it's an especially cool thing to do and an especially cool way to start a band because it gives you a chance to dabble with a few different styles and see what works. And it kind of floods the market with <laughs> shorter releases that are a bit more digestible as a fan. You know, they could be independent releases, but also related in a way. And that's what the beta band did. And of course, taking that approach sets you up for that first compilation album that draws all the EPs into one release. And this is not unique in the industry. Curve is another band that did exactly that. They released three EPs and then a compilation album and then a series of singles and full-length albums after that. So let's crack this open here. There's a, a really cool booklet that comes with this. There's just excellent art, uh, a lot of like collage art, and just the art itself is very loose, which I think is fantastic. Um, as someone who dabbled in art over the years, anything that I came up with used to suffer from being incredibly tight. So it was always cool for me to, to see new artwork that was incredibly loose because, you know, 
find that to be an inspiration. So the first release of theirs was an EP called Champion Versions. And you'll note as we go through here that the covers for the actual three EPs all have similar elements. They are all designed to go together. And I think if you're just going to put one record out as a taster, it may as well be a, uh, you know, something with a red cover with a big tiger face on it. Just go out and grab that attention right away. Um, most of their art you'll see throughout this booklet has a homemade sort of collage quality to it. And I just, I think it suits the music very well because the music kind of has a homemade collage quality to it. The leadoff track uh, for Champion Versions was Dry the Rain. Uh, talked about that already. It's just an irresistible classic track, right? It's followed by a song called I Know, which is quieter, and it's kind of got this groovy, minimalistic thing going on, um, a nice bass line on there. Uh, in general, these songs on this collection are pretty long. They're like five to seven minutes, but I Know is one of the shorter songs. That's followed by B plus A. This is an instrumental that starts out similarly to I Know. There's a guitar melody over a groovy beat. It's very repetitive, kind of hypnotic. Then about halfway through, it transforms into this huge echoing anthem. <laughs> I, I think it's great, and I'm guessing they called it B plus A because it sounds like the same song played in two wildly different styles and then just glued together, maybe? I don't know. Uh, the EP ends with the fourth track. It's called Dog's Got a Bone, and that's just a solidly written kind of down-tempo pop song that's driven by Steve's acoustic guitar. Uh, there's great vocal work and harmonies, a lot of melodies going on here. There's effective use of an accordion and conga drums and piano and harmonica. It's got key changes. <laughs> Overall, it's quite a production and just really nice work. It's a great song. Um, and we go over here. Uh, of course, there's special thanks and love to Gordon. Take the South Road soon. So hat tip to their founding member there. Then we go to the second EP, which was released later that year. It was called The Patty Patty Sound, and it starts off with a song. Look at this. Like, look at that great like shadow box collage. That's amazing, right? So The Patty Patty Sound starts off with Intermeet Me. Um, like a lot of their songs, it starts off with a chant and then has some acoustic guitar and then some old Steve Miller samples that'll you know, confuse older people who are listening to this. But it's a really energetic song. Another one of, you know, could have been a single for sure. Has a great chorus. And it proves that they just do so much with simple melodies and vocals. It's really amazing. Uh, it, it just is all in the production and the blend of different sounds. Uh, next is the house song, which is just what it says. Uh, again, it's a song that starts with a chant. And pretty soon a 4-4 beat comes in and the whole song is built around that. There's a really cool bass line from Richard Greentree. Um, at least I think it was Richard and not Steve Duffield. Don't quote me on that. But this one was a concert hit. It got everyone moving around. Then there was the monolith. Again, it's just what it says. It's In this case, it's 15 minutes of tape loops with a few 
proto songs and jams buried in there. It's just this big monolith of sound. And I'm guessing that they probably recorded hours and hours of this sort of thing <laughs> when they were fishing for ideas. Uh, it's pretty trippy in places. There's weird delays and bird sounds and noisy samples, and it, it kind of goes all over the place. But that's definitely the most experimental track in this collection by far. And that EP rounds out with She's the One. Uh, it's a nice little song that's built on Steve's acoustic guitar and vocal work, and it turns into another really cool jam with a nice organ solo. Just a really pretty song. Um, and again, this whole EP is pretty similar to Champion Versions in overall sound. And that was followed by the third EP, Los Amigos del Beta Banditos. And this time, oh, look at that picture of them there. There's the Beta Banditos there, right? They like to wear a lot of costumes in all their videos. There was a lot of just creative dressing up, and they just gave the impression that they were always just having a great time, and I hope that was the case. <laughs> so look at this. I could send this in and get more information from their label, Astral, Astral Works. Great. I'll probably do that one of these days. So the third EP starts off with Push It Out. Again, they like to build songs off repetition, and in this case, it was a repeated vocal line. So in that sense, this song is somewhat similar to She's the One. Um, maybe that's an, a, 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 you know, a, a, a British thing. They're not British, they're Scottish, but maybe it's a UK thing, like repetition. Um, certainly, um, I know people who are not fans of Monty Python because the humor is so based on endless repetition, but I don't know. I love Monty Python, so I, I can't speak to that. But um, Push It Out has, thinking about it, it has you know some nice piano and bass, has interesting percussion. Again, great vocal harmonies. I hear a gong in there. And again, just a great example of how they can take a simple idea and just do so much with it. That was followed by It's Over, another very short and simple song. I think it has about two chords. And again, it's all in Steve Mason's lyrics. He almost chants the vocal delivery, and it almost gets hypnotic in a way. And this song, it sounds like uh, Richard's playing a fretless bass, maybe. Uh, it's, here's some marimba in there. Just a neat little song. Then uh, on side B, there's Dr. Baker. This is a personal favorite of mine. Um, this song has three basic parts that repeat in a cycle. So it starts with this beautiful piano interlude with vocals, and the vocals have this uh, echo effect on them. It just sounds amazing. And that goes into this noisy percussion bit, and then a chorus. And that happens a few times through the song. But the piano makes it really distinctive. And as do the strange lyrics, which are almost telling a story. I don't know. Listen to it. See what it makes. Uh, see if it makes any sense to you. It's Kind of interesting, kind of unexpected lyrics. Finally, this EP closes out with Needles in My Eyes, and that's just an outstanding closer. Uh, another really well-written pop song. It's very laid back, um, has, a, has a beat to it. Uh, there's always something about this song, though, that put me off a bit, and I couldn't figure out what it was. It just sounded... A little off, like it wasn't as well played, maybe. It wasn't as tight as the other stuff. The tempo kind of drifts a little bit. And I couldn't put my finger on it until I saw them play live. And sure enough, 
it turned out they all switched instruments for this song. <laughs> so that explained it. But Needles in My Eyes, just a pop gem, great hooks and memorable. It would have fit well on FM radio at the time, really. Uh, so there you have it, the literal three EPs. And the first two were released in 1997, and the last one was, was released in the beginning of 1998. And they were collected into this compilation in late 1998, and a better deal you would not find. So why do I love it? Um, I guess I love it because there's so much going on on this record. It's like, it's like a rich stew. You can enjoy a mouthful and taste something different, and you get the sense of all the different ingredients that went into it, but then you also get an overall sense as well. And it doesn't get boring. I've listened to this record hundreds of times, if not thousands, and I likely will listen hundreds more. It's that complex, but it's also simple. And again, I think the magic combination was the fairly simple songwriting alongside the layered and nuanced execution, the instrumentation and the production and the voicing, the effects, and all of that. It's all in the bits and pieces here. The, you know, the, the harmonies, the samples, the rhythms. A song like Intermeet Me has maybe two chords in it, maybe three chords, but it's performed with great texture, rhythm, and melody. It's arranged just right, and it's like a symphony, even though the song structure itself is almost trivial. And I'm a fan of less is more in music. I'm not listening to music to really appreciate the virtuosity of the performers necessarily. I'm interested in the overall emotion that's getting conveyed. And I find that with, you know, with, with a few exceptions, when music gets extremely technical, uh, it, it loses me. I like music generally that's simpler. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm a fan, definitely a fan of, less is more. And what I see in this record is an effortless blending of a lot of different styles. And not many people were doing that at the time. So thinking back to 1997 in music, 1997 was full of the Spice Girls and Hanson and Candle in the Wind by Elton John. I mean, which isn't to say that other indie and alternative bands weren't doing this sort of thing, because I think they were, but I think the beta band did it very, very well. They did it really well, and they were, you know, among the more popular bands that were blending styles like this. So where are they now? Let's talk about what happened after this album came out. So like I said, they did release a debut full-length album in 1999, and I'm not going to say much more about that here. I think I want to do another episode that just focuses on this album. But after that, there were two more albums in the early 2000s. They were getting a lot of critical acclaim. They certainly had a devoted following, but they abruptly, uh, abruptly broke up in 2004. And ultimately, they were victims of the record industry. So the problem, they said, was that they were advanced over a million pounds in their career, and despite their critical success, they didn't sell enough records and tickets to recoup that investment. So they ended up being in debt to their record label. 
so in the end, it came down to being a business failure and certainly not an artistic failure. Uh, they would fracture then into a number of side projects, and Steve Mason had a handful of these. Uh, he released records as King Biscuit Time, which were outstanding in my opinion, and Black Affair that he did as a collaboration with another musician. And then he uh, started a solo career just under his own name, and he's released, I think, five, at least five albums under his own name since then. And I have a few of those albums, and they're excellent. There's, you know, he still got that touch as a songwriter and as a vocalist. Uh, John McLean and Robin Jones got back together with Gordon Anderson and formed a band called The Aliens, and they had a few releases in the mid-2000s uh, until they also kind of puttered out. And these days, John McLean is a successful film director. So he wrote and directed a movie called Slow West in 2015. So he's pursuing that as a career. And Richard Greentree, I know he played with at least another band after the beta band, but I really have no idea where he is now or what he's up to. Kind of curious about that. But... I should say that I was lucky enough to catch them live. This was in 2001. So this was in, in the midst of my interest in this band. Uh, my wife knew that I loved them, so she surprised me with tickets one day. So we got to have an adventure in the big city. And I remember going to the venue ahead of time and hearing the band inside doing their sound check. And they were playing It's Not Too Beautiful, which is one of the songs from their first album. And it's one of my favorite beta band songs overall. A very unusual song. But it was almost magical to stand there on the sidewalk and hear that song coming through the venue's doors, knowing that they were actually in there playing it live just a few yards away. That was... Uh, I hadn't been to like a ton of shows and certainly not a ton of shows in a small venue like that uh so that I, I like didn't want i was rooted to the spot i didn't want to leave i wanted to hear that whole song and i think i made us stand there until <laughs> they were done with their sound check um what do i remember from the actual show in my mind i i want to say that they were wearing astronaut costumes uh, or at least some of them were because that's one thing that they started doing uh for that album and I think, and this was the album Hot Shots 2 that came out after their uh, self-titled album. And I think Steve Mason was on stage wearing a karate outfit. <laughs> so they were fun to watch. They did a lot of instrument switching and everyone was really busy on stage. And I love seeing a band where people are busy. Uh, they really jammed out some of the tunes and they were not... Uh, hippie jam band by any stretch of the imagination. And they, I don't think they were trying to appeal to that, that uh, part of the fan base. But they did get into some pretty unstructured jamming. <laughs> but again, not to show virtuosity. It was more to show straight-up energy, you know. And that, that's where they were going with their jamming. But I remember... Uh, oh, uh, yeah, I, sh I should say... <laughs> I do use Setlist FM to remind me of some of these old shows to, to see if it triggers any memories. And it tells me that about half the stuff they played at that show were from Hot Shots 2. 
Uh, and I, I got to say, I did not love that album as much as their older stuff uh, because I think they were interested in going in a more cohesive pop direction. So they brought in like an external producer to really rein in their more extremist uh, experiments. And it just seemed less interesting to me because the songs on that record all kind of sounded the same to me with a few exceptions. And uh, they were all, you know, three minutes and 40 seconds, had verse, chorus, verse, you know, double chorus, outro. They were very polished and, and I, it just didn't appeal to me quite as much. Um, but I do remember one song in that show was pretty interesting. It was called Unknown. And it was a B-side to one of the Hot Shots singles. I think the single was Human Being, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. But on that song, John McLean used a keyboard with a breath controller. <laughs> and I had never seen that before. I just figured he was just hitting keys. But he was, uh, he was uh, blowing into this keyboard using this little tube and playing the keys. And it sounded just like a recorder. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And yeah, so that was neat. And it, it, just, it just was an example of how they were stretching, you know, and doing slightly different things from everyone else. They also had steel drums on stage. And every now and then, someone would just sort of, when they felt like it, when the mood struck them, would go over and wail on them. <laughs> it was great. Um, and, of course, I saw them do needles in my eyes and realized that they were rotating instruments, and that was a real aha moment for me. Um, so, like I said, Love and Rockets might have been an antecedent to them. I have zero idea, like, who the beta band's influences were, Um so Love and Rockets, of course, an English band. I'm sure the beta band knew who they were, but, you know, I, I have no idea if they were an influence or not. But who would follow the beta band as an act? You know, who's going to carry that torch into the future of genre-blending psychedelic pop? Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. You know, I don't follow a lot of new music, but the band that's active today that reminds me the most of the beta band, and I didn't realize this until recently, is really Hot Chip. Um, they've got that same sort of chaotic energy on stage, maybe a bit less, you know, a bit more refined. But, you know, there's a bunch of people there who are mixing genres, they're doing instrument switching, uh, but... Hot Chip, to me, are more firmly in the realm of synth-pop than the beta band ever were. The beta band were not a synth-pop band. I, I don't even know how you would characterize them. Folktronic is the term they used, and maybe, that, maybe that's a pretty good description. Um, Hot Chip does have a pretty regular guitarist in Al Doyle, but their songs are still largely rooted in keyboards. I'm sure when they're doing a lot of writing, they're writing on keyboards. Although I got to say that Alexis Taylor's vocals do kind of remind me of Steve Mason's in a good way. Uh, they both have a unique quality about them. So maybe those two guys should team up. I don't know. I'm sure there's a ton of similar bands now, but I wouldn't know. As I said before, I rarely listen to new music. Uh, some people are hungry for it. That's not me. I don't go looking for it. Sometimes new music will come to my attention and grab me like hot chip. Uh, but more often than not, it's just like water, you know, off a duck's back. Maybe it's because I don't have that tight friend group I had 
30 years ago, 20 years ago, folks who are strongly identifying with certain bands and communicating that to each other. Uh, you know, we don't exactly wear patches in our jackets these days or anything. You know, not that I ever leave the house anymore, obviously. But one of my best friends does have Spotify and all that. And he's one of those people who consumes a ton of new music. Uh, it's, it's like lifeblood to him. Uh, and he does do his best to hit me to it. But maybe it's my own personal failing or bad attitude. I don't know. But I I either don't get around to checking it out or I just <laughs> I check it out and I can't get into it. Um, seems to me that streaming is just too daunting. I find there's just simply too much music. You know, it's an endless procession of quote-unquote bands these days. There's just too many bands, and everybody's in a band, at least one band. You know, everybody's got a band and four side projects because now we can all buy Ableton Live and record studio-quality productions in the comfort of our own homes, you know? So the bar is very low as to what a band is these days. And <laughs> I'm saying that as somebody who's in a band. I mean, I think compared to most, my band is pretty damn good, but we're hopelessly drowning in a sea of millions of others, and none of us in that sea have any way to grab anyone's attention. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I think that's a topic that needs its own episode, you know, the pros and cons of music today. What's wrong with music today? Uh, yeah, there's no way I'm going to vent all of my spleen here about that at the tail end of an episode about the beta band. So <coughs> anyway, let's sum up. What is the beta band's legacy? Um, I guess what I learned from them is if they can't make it in the industry, what hope do any of us have? <laughs> Go out and watch some of their live concerts on YouTube. Like when they played Glastonbury, you'll know it because Steve Mason's dressed like a soldier. Um, really well-filmed concert there. It's just mind-bendingly good stuff, and it's fun to watch, and it's fun to listen to. Um, that's a band at their creative peak. Go watch some of their music videos, which are brilliant short films. Uh, check out Assessment check out Outside. Uh, both are nothing short of amazing and about as creative as you'll see for any kind of music video. And in my opinion, they anticipated the sort of meta-aware videos that bands like Hot Chip are making today. But the beta band did it 20-some years ago. And when you look at their career, they did everything right. They built up a rabid fan base. They achieved a lot of critical acclaim. Uh, and yet, I guess they just didn't sell. They failed due to finances. So maybe that speaks more to how crappy and unfair the music industry was at the time than to any of the band's artistic merits. Uh, if you think about the timeline, they broke up in the, the, you know, the wake of file sharing when the industry was on this cusp of changing forever. And they might have been victims of you know, that old school record industry contract back when labels would front a band tons of cash and just put them in permanent debt. You know, only the luckiest bands could climb out of that. Uh, they didn't know enough to sign a contract that would be advantageous to themselves, or they had no leverage to get that kind of contract. The only option was to get a bad contract for a lot of bands. Um, 
I wonder if the beta band would have been able to swing it if they had just come around a few years later after Napster had put the industry on ice. I don't think we'll ever know. It might have worked out differently for them then. Um, I heard Steve Mason had struggles during and after the beta band with with his mental health and things like that, and maybe that had something to do with it too. Maybe he just didn't want to be in a band anymore. I don't know. But, you know, certainly wish Steve well, and obviously he's still making outstanding music, and I've listened to just about everything he's done, and it's great stuff. If you like the beta band, you will like his solo stuff, I guarantee it. And he's still very active making albums, videos, he's touring. And I think of the four members of the beta band, he's the one who's currently the most involved in music, and it's still got that spark in it. So anyway, there you have it, the three EPs by one of the most original groups that have ever existed, the beta band. And someday I will do another episode on their first album, which is also one of my favorite records. But that's all I've got for you today. Uh, if you dug this, stick around. I got a lot of music to talk about. Uh, Stronger Than Reason is available on YouTube, believe it or not. And as a podcast, wherever you do that podcast thing, if you like what you heard, please do what they say. I feel like a chump saying it, but, you know, like and subscribe because it actually does in some way help other people with similar interests find each other. And I think that's what we've got to do in this world, folks. I think those of us with similar interests need to learn how to connect again. That might help us out. Uh, but I'm just one dude with, the, with an opinion. Consider leaving yours as a comment or start your own show. Hey, I did it. Anyone can do it. But until next time, stay strong.